I'm Massimo Bottura. This is Amanda Cohen. This is David Kinch. This is Mike Anthony. This is Huni Kim. This is Amanda Freitag. This is Richard Blaze. This is Paul Kahn. This is Curtis Stein. This is Stephen Harris. This is Missy Robbins. And you're listening to Andrew Talks to Chefs. This is what I really think about the need for change within restaurants. You can tell when someone's no longer really excited about the thing they're serving you. And when you've described the same thing 10,000 times, I don't care who you are, it's going to be hard to be nearly as excited about it as you were the first time. Well, I think there's a fine line between restaurants being a reflection of ourselves when we create them and then being self-indulgent. You might want the lights turned up so somebody can see all the beauty of your food, but is that really the best thing and the most conducive thing to a great dining experience? And maybe you're like, well, I want my restaurant to be quiet enough that Michelin's going to respond to it. If it's too loud, maybe they won't give me that second star. But maybe what really that room needs, it needs to be at a certain volume for people to really enjoy it. Those are restaurateurs Will Gadara and Kevin Bame, our guests today on a special open kitchen episode of Andrew Talks to Chefs. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Andrew Talks to Chefs. I am your host, Andrew Friedman, and we have got one of our special Open Kitchen episodes for you today. For those of you new to the show, Open Kitchen episodes are shows in which we interview non-chefs who we think fit into the mix well here. And that's certainly true of this week's guest. I was in Philadelphia this past weekend for the Philly Chef Conference at Drexel University. It's a conference run ridiculously well, I have to say, by Mike Trout and his team at the university. And it draws a better and better roster of guests and speakers every year. This was my third time attending. And as is getting to be a tradition around here, I am preparing a compilation episode of about a half dozen chef interviews I conducted on site that we'll be sharing soon. But today... I wanted to share a conversation with two of the best, most successful restaurateurs, certainly in the United States. I would say quite probably, possibly, maybe definitely on the planet. That might sound like an overstatement. I promise you it's not. My guests today are Will Gadara and Kevin Bame. For our civilian listeners, Will was, of course, the creative force behind 11 Madison Park in New York City and the Nomad restaurants in New York, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas. He's no longer associated with any of those places, but while he was there, they became some of the most influential restaurants and some of the most acclaimed restaurants in the world. Kevin Bame of Chicago's Boca Restaurant Group with partner Rob Katz owns and operates about 20 of the most successful restaurants in the Windy City, has earned a national reputation. His restaurants include Girl and the Goat and its offshoots, Momotaro, GT Fish and Oyster, and GT Prime, and of course, Boca Restaurant. Again, it is a very big company, so for anybody who is affiliated with it, whose restaurant I did not name, no offense intended, I just can't list all the restaurants in the group, I'd run out of time. Anyway, Will is also with Anthony Rudolph, the founder of the Welcome Conference, which is a hospitality conference in New York City, and had its first ever 
iteration outside New York City last fall in Chicago, and was actually curated by Kevin, along with another Chicago restaurateur, Donnie Medea. I'm proud to call Will and Kevin my good friends, and while we were in Philadelphia together, they were kind and generous enough, and I really mean this very sincerely because they're huge guests for me. I don't like to impose on my friends who, if I can avoid it, these guys get a lot of interview requests, and they were kind enough to actually suggest coming on the show to talk about all things hospitality, and this was a weekend when they weren't on stage that was really a time for R&R and soaking up Philadelphia and trying restaurants there and meeting other people at the conference. So the fact that they took an hour out to spend this time with me for my show is very meaningful to me, and I want to thank them on the air for that. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate it. Anyway, I wasn't planning on doing this interview. I was only planning on doing one-on-one interviews, so I only had two mics with me. As you'll hear, we had to pass them around a little, but as you'll also hear, that wasn't too big a deal. But if you hear us going in and out of range once in a while, that's the reason why. I would call Will and Kevin both restaurateur philosophers. They think a lot about how they do what they do, how they can be better at what they do, both as employers and as hosts, and in any other way connected to their work. They love their work. And we get into all of that here. You'll see all of that throughout this conversation. It is very wide-ranging. We cover a lot of topics related to hospitality. I think you're all going to enjoy spending time with them. And I don't think I need to say another thing about it. So please enjoy my conversation with Will Gadara and Kevin Bame. Here you go. Can I get a sound check, please? Uh, the Breakfast of Champions is Philly cheesesteak. Breakfast of Champions. Breakfast of Champions. Wizwit. Breakfast Whiz-wit. of Champions. <laughs> first of all, we're here at the conference in Philly. Have you been here before? This is not only my first time at the Philly Chef Conference, it's my first time in Philadelphia. That's what I meant. Which is sad, and I apologize to the city of Philadelphia <laughs> because I've already figured out what a great food town this is, and the, the energy of all the people here is, is really amazing. All right, so just voice-wise for people who don't know, because I'll set this up with an intro, but that is Kevin Bame. And this is Will Gadara. This is not my first time in Philadelphia, but it is my first time in a while. And I'm super happy to be here. Also kind of shocked by how easy it is to get here from New York. Yeah, I mean, it's it's 90 minutes on the on the regular Amtrak train. The Acela is even faster. Well, we know each other really well. Sometimes I say your name, Will Gadara. Sometimes I say it, Will Gadara. I hear it both ways. I'd really like to know from you, what's the what's the correct answer? There is no correct answer. However someone wants to pronounce my name... That's how they should. I say Will Gadara. That is such a Will Gadara answer. <laughs> this like goes into this is part of your whole notion of hospitality because you don't want ten thousand people out there who've said it wrong to feel bad. Well, okay. One of my pet peeves when you go to a restaurant and you let's say you order a wine, and I've been there when friends of mine have mispronounced the wine, and the sommelier confirms the wine that they ordered, but does so by correcting the pronunciation. It's a pet peeve of mine with hospitality. It's it's almost, it's just unnecessary. There's no reason to make someone know that they're wrong. We're not in the business of teaching people. You understand what I'm saying? No, I do. And you taught me that, that that was like something that shouldn't happen. To be clear, I just said we're not in the business of teaching people. I take that back. I think there are opportunities to teach in restaurants, to teach our guests. We're definitely not in the business of correcting them. So you pronounce my name however you want. I'd love to just let maybe let you guys talk to each other even for a minute. 
we had dinner last night. I had been there before. It's a guy you you both are pretty friendly with. I know Will especially, but we went to Mike Solomonov's Zahav restaurant, and it was your it was your first times there. I would just maybe love to hear you two riff a little on what what struck you about the restaurant. This is this is what I loved about it. And we had this conversation last night about the mystery of restaurants being gone because we all look at a million pictures of restaurants before we get there and we've already looked at the menu. Sahab was one of these restaurants that I still had, it was, was shrouded in a little bit of mystery for me because I'd actually never looked at a picture of the dining room before. And I knew a little bit about the experience, but the, the restaurant that I had in my mind and the restaurant that we experienced were actually two different things. It was the same for me. It was the, really? Yeah. So I, I, was, I was amazed at how much fun it was. Um, it was still serious. You know, the food is serious. Michael is serious. But it's a great sounding room, which I really appreciate. They had, the, it's, a, it's a great acoustical room and the music's turned up and it's just fun. Yeah, I agree. I think there are those, I have these memories of watching movies uh, where there's a speakeasy back in Prohibition days. And when they slide open the little, the yeah, slot yeah. in the door where you could hear the energy and the music come through, which I don't think, it's not actually possible that just that opening, like release that yes. much sound. That's a Scorsese effect. Exactly. <laughs> but I think there's something that I've always felt a connection to in a great restaurant where when you open the door, you're almost hit with this wall of energy. And it's a combination of the music, just the, the the sheer natural energy, the the noise of clinking glasses and pots and pans and silver. And I always talk about you can close your eyes in a dining room and you can know whether or not service is going well. Um, but in addition to that, you can open the door of a restaurant and you can know whether that's the kind of place you want to be. And last night, okay, obviously the food was insanely delicious and... Um, I mean, we ate two meals worth of food in, in a couple hours. We did. <clears throat> but it was just fun. And I think that's something that in this day and age, one of the reasons why I felt so drawn to and connected with Kevin's approach to restaurants so early um, was that I found that same energy in each one of your restaurants where you walk in and there's uh, the restaurant business generally is always uh, running the risk of falling off a cliff of uh, restaurants becoming too self-reverent, like where people are too focused on showing what they can do as opposed to just creating an environment where people can have a good time and connect and form relationships. I think what you're saying is to unselfconsciously, at least from the customer-facing side, be itself, do what it does, but without metaphysically drawing arrows to it or underlining it or a asking for the pat on the back, just sort of having the confidence to do what it does really well or and having, put it out there. I, I think it has to Kind of like it would be with a person. You know, there's people who are confident and there's people who have all these great qualities, but maybe feel like they need to advertise it a lot. Well, yeah, but I think it's also what is the intent of the restaurant? I believe that restaurants, the food, the service, and the environment are simply ingredients in the recipe of human connection. Restaurants are one of the few places left where people can come together and connect, where the energy is so compelling that we actually leave our phones in our pockets and we look across the table at people that we want to spend time with and we give ourselves fully to that experience. 
that's what a restaurant should be. But there are plenty of restaurants out there where the people running them are just focused so much on impressing the people that they're serving with their food or with their steps of service that they forget about the real reason that we all started doing what we do. Well, I think there's a fine line between restaurants being a reflection of ourselves when we create them and then being self-indulgent. Yeah. And so, you know, you might want the lights turned up so somebody can see all the beauty of your food, but is that really the best thing and the most conducive thing to a great dining experience? And maybe you're like, well, I want my restaurant to be quiet enough that Michelin's going to respond to it. If it's too loud, maybe they won't give me that second star. But maybe what really that room needs and for the kind of food you need, it needs to be at a certain volume to, 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 for people to really enjoy it. So it's to stop thinking about, I think, think it's thinking about people in a broader sense. You know, Sometimes people open up restaurants for a very small group of people and sometimes just for writers. And really, you want to, in a perfect world, be, to be able to respond to a broad audience, right? You want everybody to love it. How do you guys go about keeping yourselves in check on that front? There's a term I used to hear when I did consulting work. People at a corporation would say, we're, we're talking to ourselves too much, you know, meaning it becomes too, you know, it's like when you hold a mirror up to itself, you know, and you just get lost in that. Do you have, like, do you periodically make a point of sitting in your own dining rooms and having a meal? Do you, do you ask friends to come in? you know, just without like you putting the gold star next to their name and then letting you know wh what their impressions were. What are you, how do you go about kind of making sure that doesn't get, a, you don't lose the plot on that front? This is a really interesting question because we talk a lot about, we used to do like friends and family and you would have people come in and, you know, even had a couple restaurants where I had people fill out the cards and stuff. I, that, I, I, ended, I actually hated that. Um, it got in the way of us knowing who we wanted to be. The best thing is when someone at friends and family are like three days out and their criticism is that they don't like the chairs. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's one well, thing if they say like the lamb, the portion's too small or it's too salty or so you change that. They're like, we don't like the chairs. You're like, well, thanks. <laughs> someone just custom made those chairs and it's been like a six month process. And you're like, thanks a lot for that. No, we don't do that anymore. We we do live training with people who just work for the company. Um, but before we get to that point, there is a room full of people that are having spirited conversations around what that restaurant should be. And so we kind of trust in that. You know, I talk all the time about this heist team mentality that we have, that we have this whole crew of specialized talent. You know, and you know, we're sitting around the table with the safe cracker and the getaway car guy and everybody everybody's putting their opinions on all the aspects that they're really good at. So by the time we get to that opening, we have a pretty good idea that we think we're putting out something there that that's great. And then the public, yes, the public decides later on. No, but I, I, I think eating in your own restaurants is essential. And I think that too many people don't do it often enough. Everyone tastes the dishes before they put them on the menu, but a dish tastes differently when you're standing up in the kitchen than it does when you're sitting in the dining room. You need to eat a dish in its entirety to know what the experience is going to truly be like for the guest. Similarly, uh, the volume or the light level, it feels different when you're sitting at the table than when you're walking through the room. Similarly, when you're sitting at a table, you just you have the capacity to see the world through the lens of the people you're serving. 
not through your own lens as the person who's serving the experience. I, I think that there are two types of restaurants. Those that are based on the experience the restaurateur wants to serve and those that are based on the experience the restaurateur wants to receive. And I believe the latter are always the better restaurants. There's plenty of people who have created restaurants that they don't want to go to that often. They're just proud of, of the experience that they're serving. But you know it's a great restaurant when the person who owns it wants to also be there, eating there all the time. Because they're creating the world that they wished existed. I think it's my favorite part about what we get to do for a living. We get to dream up these worlds in our head and then bring them to life. And it's inevitable, it's a part of the human condition, that our tastes change over time. So if you don't eat in your restaurant frequently enough, you won't know when it's time for it to evolve. And you're probably doing it wrong if you spend all this time creating a world and you don't want to live in it. <laughs> so I eat probably 90% of, of my meals inside of, of my restaurants, and rarely a week goes by that I don't have some note from that. And it can be as, as simple and small as, when did we go in this direction with the floral? Yeah. <laughs> I don't like the way that looks in front of me. To, we need more padding in the seats. These things have, have lowered a bit, and I'm too low in this seat. So a lot of that stuff comes up all the time. And without being in there, I would never notice that. Yeah, or the portions are too small, or they're too big, or I thought the music levels were just right, but now that I'm actually trying to have a conversation, I'm realizing they're too loud. Or, I mean, it happened to us at 11 Madison Park. I ate at 11 Madison Park four times a year for 12 years. And we had a 15-course menu at one point. All of the other restaurants in the top 10 had a 15-course menu. And one time, after seven courses, I was over it. And it was clear that if we wanted to serve the experience that we wanted to receive, which I believe is the only genuine and authentic way to run a restaurant, that we needed to shorten the menu. And I think it was one of the most important things we did in the evolution of that restaurant. So I have a philosophical question for you. When you say that, the average person doesn't come to a restaurant like that four times a year. You know, like I remember years ago, there was a critic who wrote something about it was about per se. And it was saying like, oh, here we go again with the salmon cone, you know, that starts the meals at the French Laundry and per se forever, right? And I thought, that's such an insular thing to say. Like how many people, like for a lot of people going to a restaurant like 11 Madison or per se, right, is like a life, like it's like a lifetime, one-time thing. Some people save up for those kind of experiences. So my question is, is it, how do I put this question? It, was it more about for you all to keep doing what you were doing with the same level of you know passion, commitment, excitement every day about doing it? Was it as much about that as it was about... Because even coming in four times a year, that wasn't like a normal customer relationship with the restaurant. Does no, that make sense? No, it does. I mean, we changed the menu dramatically with each season. Mm -hmm. And it was important to eat there within the first two days of each new menu. Mm -hmm. Because invariably, the menu that you conceive and you think is going to feel just right as the person serving it, it doesn't always land in the way you intended it for it to as the person receiving it. Um, and so, yeah, there were some things that didn't change, but a large majority of it did. And every time the new menu, like the spring menu on day one, would always be very different from the spring menu on day four because we'd eat there, make a bunch of changes, implement those changes, 
and then the menu became what it was meant to be. Well, you, Will and I have had a lot of conversations about how in a perfect world, restaurants should actually get better with time, but they rarely do. And I think one of the reasons for that is, is that restaurants don't evolve as much as they should. So when I hear Will talk about something like that, that's someone paying attention and saying, you know what, we should evolve to this because you do have people that go to 11 Madison Park all the time. And when they see change, it just seems to me like the people that are running it are paying attention. And I see a lot of restaurants doing the same thing. And what you get with that often is the laws of diminishing returns is that the people who started it and were doing this menu at the beginning were so passionate about it. And so, and now they've done it a million times and eight years later, it's this watered down version of what it used to be. Mm -hmm. So I think change keeps everybody energized inside the restaurant because it's new to them. See, I would say, I don't even feel, from a food standpoint, give me, get, let me get your guys take from the just hospitality standpoint, right? From the food standpoint, when you just said like over like eight years, I think you said something yeah. gets diluted. I would actually say in the in the food realm, restaurant food, that time frame is maybe more like eight weeks because ideas travel now instantaneously. You know, the day a new Very dish true. debuts, everyone sees it around the cook see it, right? What's it like from the restaurateur standpoint as you are as much as you're like you talked about coming into Zahav Cold and how that's kind of an unusual experience now? What are the pros and cons of being able to see and tour, you know, through slideshows and videos and websites, you know, restaurants all around the world? Is it a good thing or a bad thing to have so much um, access to so much of what's going on in so many places? doing what you do? Like, can you get o almost overwhelmed with input or inspirations? I, yeah, I think we, I think I do get overwhelmed with, with stuff, but I also get, I'm also inspired by so many different things that are non restaurants. So I think what I've found myself doing lately is reading less about restaurants, um, going in more cold like we did last night and experiencing them. Um, and then trying to take inspiration in all kinds of things when we're do we're opening up a restaurant, if that makes sense. But I don't spend a lot of time looking at 150 different websites of other restaurants. I don't know about you, Will. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. But I think back to what you said: eight weeks versus eight years. This is this is what I really think about the need for change within restaurants. I, I don't think anyone should ever change for the sake of change, but. It's not just how many times the guest has had whatever signature dish. It's how many times the team has spieled that dish. Can you explain what spiel means to people? Yeah, that? spieling is just explaining the dish. Um, you can tell when someone's no longer really excited about the thing they're serving you. And when you've described the same thing 10,000 times, I don't care who you are, it's going to be hard to be nearly as excited about it as you were the first time. I also think one of the things we, we really focus on that I've always focused on in managing a team is giving everyone on the team a sense of ownership in the experience they've, they've created. And I mean, there's turnover in restaurants. Any restaurant team five years later looks very different um, just because people move on, they get promoted within your company or they go off to do other things. And if five years later the team is serving uh, a menu um, or following the steps of service that an entirely different group of people created, they feel less of a connection to it. They feel less of a sense of ownership for it. 
And so I think sometimes things need to change, not necessarily to stay fresh for the guest, but to stay fresh for the team. Because the moment that a team stops feeling excited about something, you can feel it and the restaurant becomes much less compelling. Aren't there restaurants though that we all go to that we want to go back because we want the exact same experience we had before? And there are other restaurants, more ambitious restaurants, where we go and we say, I hope I get a completely different menu than the last time I went. No, I completely agree. And I, but I, I do think that's where nuance and judgment comes in. I think that um, perhaps, like, yeah, you go to the restaurant and they had like a signature dish. If you go to Zuni Cafe, you want the chicken, you know, and you yeah. want it the exact same way you had at the time before. But, but that doesn't mean there's not a, a, a myriad of other ways that they can be reinventing themselves such that the people on the team feel a sense of ownership over what they're doing. So true. Um, but yeah, it is the type of restaurant. I, I've had long conversations about what makes a restaurant an institution. And to your point, a restaurant becomes an institution when there are certain things that never leave the menu. At 11 Madison Park, we would never remove the duck. At the Nomad, we would never remove the chicken. There are some things that you just don't mess with, but that doesn't mean that there aren't a lot of other opportunities um, to evolve and reinvent such that things continue to stay exciting and relevant and fresh for the people on the team. We always have this conversation about there are certain kinds of restaurants that are bad, average, good, great, and iconic restaurants. Yeah. And how do you jump from good to great to iconic? Andrew, can you answer that question? You want question? me to answer that as someone whose <laughs> last uh, restaurant job was busting tables at Mexico Lindo and Coral Gables, You Florida. talk to a lot of people who've had iconic restaurants. Uh, I don't know the answer to that, but I think more or less it amounts to... I just I think a lot of this stuff amounts to just ambition. To just, I mean, for lack of a better word for it, I think, I mean, ambition to be great, like to want to right. be. I was having this talk with another writer. Uh, no, I'm sorry. I was having this talk with a chef, and we were talking about this, like, this similarity we had in. Um, uh, I'm not saying who it was because it wasn't an interview. It was mm-hmm. we just had coffee this morning, and we we're talking about young cooks, you know. And I was saying, you know, with young writers, you know, the chef was bemoaning, and I've heard this from so many chefs. You know, they they line up an interview and the questions are like, what's your favorite kitchen tool? And what's your favorite ingredient? And what's in your fridge at home? And da 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 And he's like, I just give it to my publicist and say, you answer this or tell him I'm too busy or whatever you want. And and I said, well, you know what's crazy to me is like, as a, like I'm a writer now, 52 years old, two kids, a dog, a wife who has a huge career of her own. And I still work as flat out hard as I did when I was 25. I'm still pushing myself because I want to be really good, you know? I spend a couple of hours editing this show every week because I can't afford to pay someone to do it right now, yet. Yes. But yeah. I go over each show. I mean, if people knew how much I could... Can we I, edit in a little applause <laughs> for Andrew right now? <laughs> no. But as I... Am I, am I going... Is this too honest? That's, I no, but I said, I, I said to this guy this morning, if, if I can do all this, you know, if I can still work this hard and want to be... Want everything I put out to be this good... After doing this for this long, I don't understand young writers who don't do that unless they just don't want to be great. And and I don't mean ambition like just the ambition for money or the. I just mean just the ambition to be the best at what you do. I I, I totally agree. That's what I mean. Being great is hard, but writers are part of the puzzle of making a restaurant iconic. Without writers who to without writers who champion certain restaurants, it's very difficult to get to that iconic place. No, I agree, but I also, and that's a relationship that I think has also gotten very tricky in the last decade or two versus yes. what it used to yeah. be. Well, I just think lines are blurred and friendships are, you know, it's like, 
you know, there's people who still kind of writers who still obey the older rules of, you know, how much you socialize and how close you get to people. And like, I could never, I don't think anybody, I would like to think nobody would ever hire me to be a restaurant critic. Okay. But I certainly don't believe I ever should be, you know, I'm too recognizable at this point to people in the business. I have too many friends and, and I have too many people. Dietary restrictions. Very funny. And I have too many people who used to work for friends of mine. I just couldn't do it, you know, and I'd like to, I wouldn't do it, but I'd like to think nobody would offer me that job. But I actually don't know if that's true. I bet I could get a critic job these days, today, you know, and it's just something that's, I always say this, I never want to sound like things used to be, you know, things just get, things change, Mm -hmm. you know, but I do think, you know, like I believe in full disclosure. If I write about a place where I was comped, if I even mention it, like in just a blog post, not even a review. I, I usually will say, you know, I was their guest. You know, I think you have to acknowledge those things. You should review the new Will Gadara restaurant when it comes out. <laughs> which, which brings up a great question. Will it? I assume you're going to open up another restaurant someday. I just want to mark it. At 25 minutes in, Kevin took over the uh, interview. Okay, here. Wait, I'm not done talking about what we were talking about before. No, and I, what I wanted to say. Don't avoid the question. No, sorry. Swift and Sons. We did pre-meal there. We did. Uh, because it's turning five? It, yeah, it's, it's a little past five years old, yeah. Um, Can we explain what Swift & Sons is? Swift & Sons is a steakhouse that we have in the Fulton Market District of, of Chicago. Um, it's really uh, got some cool symmetry to history because um, uh, the Ar- Armour and & Company and Swift & Company were the two massive meat packers that were in Fulton, the biggest meat packers in the world, were right in that neighborhood. And we have now have a steakhouse in that neighborhood, and I think we are the only steakhouse in that neighborhood, which is kind of fun. And we did pre-meal together. Um, I was in Chicago. Kevin asked me to go do pre-meal, and I haven't done pre-meal in a while, so it felt fun. <laughs> but we talked about reinvention. And to be clear, I don't think there's any ambition to stop serving steaks there. It's not about reinventing the menu. It's about just shaking things up where the team feels that sense of passion and zeal five years in that they did on day five. By the way, it was easier for me to do that pre-meal because after we did Welcome Chicago together, I ate there. And so I yes. just experienced the restaurant as a guest, and it, it felt much easier for me to connect with the people working there because I understood um, what the experience of dining there felt like. And I, I think it's another reason. You, you say that you're working just as hard today as you did when you were 25 because you want to be the best, and I agree. I think it's also, though, and one of the reasons why you and I became friends so quickly is that that's just what it means to have fun at work. There are people that like to maintain something and there are people that like to create something. And there's no rule that says you can't do both at once. Maintaining is harder though. I, I think when you open up a restaurant, your goals are very, very defined. You're like, okay, we want, we want to get one Michelin star. We want to get three stars from the Tribune. You know, we, we want to build an audience. We want to have this kind of sales. And when you get to year five, they're not as defined. You really have to sit down with everybody and say, what are our goals going to be for this next year? Where are we going to take this restaurant? But that's where I think, that's why I say maintaining and creating need to happen at the same time. Because I don't believe you can maintain anything without simultaneously creating something. And so maybe it's creating new goals. Maybe it's creating new cultures. Maybe it's creating new systems, new opportunities. Maybe it's creating new ways for the team to feel motivated or compelled um, events, ideas. I think that creation is an essential ingredient in maintenance. 
I, I do believe they go hand in hand. I, I agree with you. And so that's one of the reasons with us, we change our guiding principles every single year. So we sit down every single year and we say, okay, these were our guiding principles, uh, you know, last year, you know, uh, don't ask somebody how they're doing with a, uh, period, ask it with a question mark, you know, that sort of thing. And then next year we'll say, okay, maybe this year is more about social responsibility within our restaurants or whatever it is. So we sit down every year and, and have that conversation. And that allows us to create because, we said the, say at the beginning of the year, here's who we're going to be, and then we're going to grade ourselves in 365 days. And you don't want to be the schmuck that was just idle chatter. Yeah. Freaking hate idle chatter. So related question, okay, because I've gotten to know you guys both the last couple of years. Something that strikes me is the number of places from which you all get inspiration, right? Maybe not necessarily for a restaurant concept, but for what you do, right? We I've talked with each of you, both of you together, individually, whether it's movies, whether it's uh, a, a scene in a movie, whether it's a line of from a from a book or a or from Shakespeare, whether it's music, where do you guys get inspiration, and 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 how do you kind of filter that through, or what's the converter that that goes through to trickle down into you know what you and your teams do in your in your restaurants? You know, I was listening to to I was taking my my twelve year old to dance the other day, and. Joni Mitchell, Both Sides Now was on. And, you know, my mom used to listen to that record a lot when I was growing up. And I never really listened to the lyrics as intently as I did mm. driving home. And I'm like, wow, this is really interesting. And I ended up spending the next three or four hours thinking about all these ideas I had about restaurants when I was very young. When I, when I didn't know everything that went on behind the curtain, and they were very, very magical to me. And, and now, kind of knowing everything that happens behind the curtain, um, and what's the line that she says in it? It's, it's cloud illusions I recall. And the line really is about, it's the illusion that still lives inside of her heart. You know, she really, you know, the clouds blocking the sun is how she feels now, because she's slightly more cynical. But what really lives inside her is the illusion she had at the beginning. And I still believe in magic. That's actually was one of our guiding principles last year was like, believe in magic. That's all it said. And I really do still believe in magic in restaurants. And so I think some people can listen to that song and think that it's cynical. I came out of it thinking that it was hopeful that she was saying, the cloud illusions I recall is who she wants to be. She wants to be this person that still believes in magic. And so I went back and wrote this thing, wrote this piece was about the fact that I still believed in magic and restaurants. I love that. It's funny. I did this talk for a bunch of students at the university here yesterday. And the last question that I was asked was, um, what was your greatest pre-shift or something like that? Can you just explain to people what we, I mean, yes. well, pre-shift is something that Kevin and I talk about a lot. Um, because we, we have in common our, um, belief that it's, the most important 30 minutes every single day in a restaurant. It's the 30 minute meeting that happens right before you open the doors to the public. And it's in that 30 minutes, okay, restaurants, uh, they go over the specials and he winds by the glass that have changed and he steps of service. And then a great restaurant um, also uses it as an opportunity to share lessons in leadership or moments of inspiration. Um, Kevin and I spend a lot of time talking about pre-shift. It's the moment when your restaurant ceases to be a collection of individuals and starts to become a team. Um, <clears throat> and so he asked, what's your greatest pre-shift? And that's a hard question. I don't know. Pre-shift 
is just an opportunity to share what's going on in your head. And we were, we were in a car together on our way to Zahav uh, last night, and we were talking about this, that I believe there's inspiration everywhere. Um, we had inspiration yesterday when we went to an event. Yeah, exactly. We went to this event yesterday, and we walked into uh, a restaurant, and we said, hey, we're looking for this. It was like a, a restaurant within the restaurant. And she said, I'm sorry, it's closed for a private event. We're like, yeah, we're here for the private event. And that was, had I done pre-shift later that day, I would have been, hey, guys, like, be careful. The answer should be, are you joining us for the private event? We felt like we were judged as people that she deemed not uh, worthy of being at that event. I actually said, I go, Will, I told you not to wear that sweater. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But you see things that inspire you all day, every day. Um, the difference between those that are good and those that are great are whether or not your eyes are open enough to see those things. Um, and then whether or not you're a good leader is whether or not you choose to share that inspiration with your team. I think that being inspired and not sharing that inspiration is selfish. Um, and so, I mean, it happens all the time. I got surgery not that long ago. And they put a bracelet on my wrist that said allergy, um, a red bracelet with the word allergy on it. And I talked to probably 20 different people before I had surgery, and every single one of the people confirmed that allergy. Now, it was annoying and it was redundant, but the number of times that restaurants mess up on allergies is insane to me. Even I'm just even even great restaurants. Even great restaurants mess up allergies all the time. This hospital does not have uh they're not allowed to. And so they've put in systems to make sure that they never mess up. And that just inspired me to remember the fact that you can systemize anything so long as you decide it's important enough to not mess up. I checked into this hotel that we're in right now yesterday. And when I checked in, uh, the woman at the front desk said, you're in room 927. It's one of my favorite rooms. And it got me so excited for my room. And I got to my room. I'll be honest. It's a good room. It's not an amazing room. But her excitement got me excited. And it was very unlikely that I was not going to like the room because of the expectations that she set. Were I doing pre-meal yesterday after that? I would have talked about the fact that there's a big difference between being egotistical and being really excited about the product you're serving. Um, People are so often trying to be humble that they don't show their like profuse excitement or pride in their product. And I think that if you are really like genuinely proud of what you're doing, you got to share that because the person you're serving is going to be that much more excited to receive it. The goal of pre-shift is to inspire all those people so much that they give a better service than they would have if they had not heard the words that you said. So that's what we're trying to do every time because people do very well with stakes, right? If, if we told them, we were, if we said, hey, tonight... If we can operate at this level, you guys are all going to win a million dollars. Right. Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> they would go out there and give the greatest service of their lives. You know, so how do you create those stakes on a nightly basis is what you're always trying to do. And you lean into several different things. You lean into their pride. 
you lean into the greater good of the restaurant. You lean, you lean into if the restaurant does better financially, you're going to do better. You lean into the fact that, you know, this is the most important thing in chef's world. You guys are framing his food every night, whatever, what, however you're trying to get there, you know, and I hate to, I hate to say manipulate the end result you want to achieve. You're not, you're not trying to manipulate. You're, you're trying to motivate. You're, you're motivate. You're, yeah. you're all in a foxhole together yeah. and you're like, Hey, let's do this together. That's the whole goal of pre of pre meal is to, is to, is to motivate all these guys to be the absolute best that they can be. And the thing that makes me the most excited is okay we're talking about the the original question is where do you find inspiration and we see it in the world we bring it back to our teams my proudest moments are those when someone on the team comes up to me before pre-service and they say hey can i can i have a few minutes tonight i had this experience the other day and i want to share it with the team because the moment that the entire staff recognizes not only their opportunity but their responsibility to contribute to the cause that it's not just Kevin's job to motivate his team. It's not just my job to motivate mine, but it's everyone's job to motivate one another. That's when you become unstoppable. And the more you share moments that have inspired you with your team, the more likely they are to seek out those moments in their lives such that they can bring them back and share them as well. It's funny. We were talking about last night that, that Will and I both have pre-shifts that we've given and told the same story you know, three or 400 times. It's, you know, the equivalent of James Taylor doing fire and right, rain or piano again, man or, or piano yeah. man. Um, but it's funny. They, they mix those stories up a little bit in concert, you know, they change it a little bit. They change the phrasing up a little bit. Yeah. So some of these have been fun because, you know, you start to hone them as you go on, you tell the story a little bit differently, or there's a different lesson that you draw from that story. Will now tells my Wendy story, and he says that it's him. You tell whatever. his Wendy story? <laughs> I, I don't say it's me. I tell it as him. I say a buddy of mine went into this Wendy's. Da, 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 da. You should probably share that. It's this great story you tell. It's too long a story for the show. But it was about a, a, it was about going into a Wendy's and anybody having who grand... wants to anybody who wants to hear it can find it. I'm Go sure. to thewelcomeconference.org and you'll find Kevin Bam's speech where you can listen to his Wendy's story. Welcome <laughs> conference that is welcomeconference.org. Kevin Bam restoration of your soul it's on youtube it's you gave this talk at the at the welcome conference a couple yeah. of years ago what was interesting you talk about riffing on things right the talk you gave it included the wendy story but it actually also included a story about gene hackman it also it, for people who know the old meatloaf song paradise by the dashboard lights that's actually four songs in one basically that was a, i'm assuming that was actually a combination of three or four talks you gave that you thematically linked together. Yeah, I always think that the Because the Wendy story and the Gene Hackman story can be told independently. They sure can. And, yeah. and, I, and I think that, that stories sell lessons better. So yeah, I think I told like eight stories in that yeah. speech. But uh, I think a great speech has several different stories to drive the, the point home. My theme song and break music is from After School Special's album, Double Barrel, Single Entendre, which is available on iTunes. Welcome back to the show. I don't have a whole lot to share this week during our mid-show break, but I do have a reminder that I'd love for you to drop by 
the official home of our podcast, that is andrewtalkstochefs.com. There you can find our entire catalog of more than 100 episodes, as well as information about some upcoming appearances I have, including one this very Sunday, March 8th, speaking to the culinary historians of Washington, D.C. about my book, Chefs, Drugs, and Rock and Roll, and coming up on April 6th and 7th in San Diego, my appearance at the Chef's Roll Anti-Convention. If you'd like to learn more about those, you can visit the appearances page at andrewtalkstochefs.com. I also have to make a huge public thank you to all listeners who have answered our call to help people find the podcast and taken the time to tell your friends about the show. I'd like to give an extra special thanks to new listener Chef Durfee. I'm using uh, social media handles here. Uh, Chef Durfee, who wrote a very kind Apple podcast review this past week, and to a couple of chefs who did Instagram stories pointing people to the show, Chef Drew Ward, and to all Pauly, who was also a chef. I hope I didn't forget anybody who I was able to see by name out there in the uh, virtual universe. If I did, please forgive me. And as mentioned in a couple of shows recently, we are asking for your help spreading the word about the podcast, however you feel like it to help us stand out from the non-stop proliferation of other shows out there. There's a lot of them. We try to do good work here. We really appreciate you putting people who you think might enjoy it onto it. Again, our Instagram handle is at Chef Podcast, and we are also on Facebook. And of course, the website is andrewtalkstochefs.com. And that's all I have to report. Let me now get you back to my conversation with Will Gadara and Kevin Bame. I hope you enjoy the rest of it. A couple quick things. One is when you were talking about, you know, you said you don't want to, manip- you're not manipulating people, right? I, I think, you know, I'm reminded of my, my brother who, who for years has worked in different retail situations. He's managed teams and he loves, you know, getting his team fired up and he loves checking, you know, the numbers and seeing how they did and right. And that, he obviously, on some animal level, right, spiritual level, whatever you want to call it, gets enormous satisfaction from functioning in that almost parental role, right? And he is obviously able to tap into something, and this is, I think, what you're both talking about, to tap into something that feels good, you know, as a person, right? Like, it feels good to work toward a common goal. It feels good to achieve something you want to achieve. In your guys' line of work, there's this extra dimension of the human connection you have with your guests, right? And I think that's what it is you're talking about. Like, to everyone involved in, in, in this aspect of your business, uh, you know, there's ways people could make a lot more money sitting in a cubicle in, in, in the world of finance. But I think for some people, that that realm, that environment is is death. When I opened up my restaurant in Springfield, Illinois years ago, I made a conscious decision to hire a lot of people who didn't have a lot of experience in restaurants. And I think I did that because I thought they were going to be more malleable. And, and, and my whole speech to them when we opened was like, hey guys, we're going to bring the world to Springfield. It was actually, I had a really bad radio ad and it ended with Indigo Restaurant bringing the world to Springfield. <laughs> and so... <laughs> Wait, you, liter- you had a li- literal radio ad? I did, for your- yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so silly. But um, this is a long time ago. This is like 23 years My ago. My request was- for this podcast 
Find that, that you find, find that, that radio ad, and at the end, when we're done talking, you play the Indigo Restaurant radio. <laughs> Want to know ad. what's even worse? Is it was actually my voice. <laughs> it was it was actually Indigo Restaurant bringing the world to Springfield. Um, and so, but that was my line to these guys. I was like, I was like, hey, nobody writes about restaurants outside of Chicago. We're going to change that. We're going to do something amazing here. We're going to change the landscape of the dining world. I mean, I really, and I believed it. That wasn't just a speech. I, I really thought we could. Like, people are going to say the best restaurant outside of Chicago is in downstate Illinois. I mean, that's, that's, and so they got behind it. They bought into it. I've talked about this a million times, but my dad's quote he gave me on a paperweight when I was a kid what would you attempt to do if you knew you could not fail? Um, too many people are too scared to answer that question honestly for fear that they'll let themselves or the people around them down. But to accomplish anything of significance, you need to have the courage to say it out loud. And, I mean, Jay-Z says it differently. You can, you can talk things into existence. The only way that restaurant would ever become world-class is if you, A, believed it could, and B, had the courage to tell your team it would. And... I love that. I, I mean, listen, we, we've we're both we've both been in this business for a long time, and I'm sure we'd be profoundly embarrassed about the way we articulated things at varying seasons in our career. But that level of audaciousness and ambition and belief, not only in ourselves but in the teams that we've built, I think has been consistent. Um, and I think it's hilarious you did it in a radio ad, but it doesn't take away from the fact that. That's the reason you are where you are, is that you believe enough in yourself that you are able to be what some would say almost reckless enough to say these unreasonable things out loud and then in doing so compel a group of people to help you achieve them. I've been talking a lot about lately about why self-awareness is really overrated because when I was young, yeah, if I had been truly self-aware, I would have said, okay, the Chicago Tribune's probably not going to really come down and write about a restaurant in Springfield, Illinois. And, but, but at the same time, if I had been more self-aware when I dropped out of college, I probably would have said, it's probably not realistic that I could go down to Florida, save up enough money to open up a restaurant, and then actually succeed in a business that's a 90% failure rate. If I was self-aware at all, I never would have done that. So I think it's sometimes difficult to dream it forward if you're too self-aware, especially when you're starting out. So I, I'm kind of happy that I was reckless and naive and unreasonable and fairly self-aware because <laughs> it allowed me to go after things that, you know, either by luck or dumb chance or sheer will, I still was able to make happen in some form or fashion. Yeah. Not psych yourself out. I wrote much more freely when I was 16 than I do now. It's funny. Okay. You're talking about self-awareness and how the lack of self-awareness early in your career got you uh, comfortable with taking risks that you probably wouldn't have taken if you were able to see the world through more reasonable eyes. Um, it's been something I've thought about recently, especially as I'm going through this transition in my career. Um, the more you have, the more you have to lose, and the harder it is to take risks as big as the ones that you needed to take to get to where you are. The more reasonable you become as you yeah. get older. And so how do you, have you been thinking about that? I have. I think I think about it all the time. 
Can I put this in Rocky Three terms? The worst thing happened to you that could happen to any fighter. You got civilized. <laughs> that's no, that's 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 exactly right. Hundred hundred percent. And yeah, like um, I actually did that this last year. I, I started just like thinking out of the box of like if I could do anything, what would I do? And you know, I'm opening up this private club called Beyond that has a foundation in wellness, and that was completely born out of me just like being unreasonable again and thinking there's kind of a blank space in like the private members world in terms of wellness. Nobody's doing this. And so we're, we're building the most comprehensive wellness private club that exists in the world. Um, and that was just born out of like, yeah, thinking without trying to think without consequence, trying to think without being safe. Um, and me just calling a friend up and saying, Hey, what do you think about this? No, and I love that. I love that you're doing that, A, because it is a risk. It's very different from what you've been doing over the last 15, 20 years. But it's something I've been just, it has been something that I've been thinking about. The number of unreasonably risky things that we did to get to where we were as a company, I look back on them and it gives me heart palpitations. Closing and renovating a restaurant that was full every night just because we believed it could be better. Um, Things like that over and over and over again, making big financial commitments before we'd even found the money to to support those things. I got so many of those stories. And and I think about that stuff and it and it it's only possible to do that when you are almost ignorant to the consequences of those actions. I think the craziest thing Rob and I did is when we were opening up Girl and the Goat, middle of a financial crisis. And we basically had barely any money left. And we saw this opportunity kind of to slingshot at that time. And there was a building that was available with this really low lease, but had key money on it. We basically spent the rest of the money we had in the world to buy the lease on that building. And then we locked the door and shut it and said, we'll come back in six months. Let's go get Girl in the Goat open. And I'd look back on that. And I remember either Rob said to me or I said it to him, he goes, either this is going to be an unbelievable success or our kids aren't going to college. Yeah. And the question is, would you go to zero again today? No. That's my point. Absolutely not. And so when I think about like the creative arc in someone's career, how much of a correlation is there between like unreasonable risk taking and the capacity to have impact? And I'm not sure what the answer is, but one of the things I have been thinking about is the need to not become too reasonable. And I think it's it's something I learned working with Grant Ackett's when we did the restaurant swap. Grant Ackett's was unreasonable in his pursuit of whatever he wanted to achieve. They, We had our thing, we would say all the time, make it nice. Their thing was whatever it takes. Anyone who's worked there will tell you, like I had Dave Barron on the show, and he said that's the in-house philosophy. And and they mean it. Yeah. And, and so... As I've been thinking about my next chapter, okay, so what am I going to do next? I, I will open restaurants. I did think for a little while about whether I wanted to do restaurants again or not, um, only because it's important to at least have that conversation, you know, not to just do what you've been doing just because that's what you're supposed to do, but to make the decision to continue doing it and make it a very intentional decision. Um, and so I thought about not doing restaurants and doing something else. And then, I mean, listen, I'm a restaurant guy. That's what I love to do. I want to raise my kids in restaurants. I don't think I could be happy not running restaurants. Can I say something? Yeah. It's ridiculous that you thought 
not to do rest, maybe to not do restaurants. <laughs> you are a restaurant guy. Well, no, you're no. so spectacularly good at restaurants. He's, no, but I, I, I genuinely considered it for what a while. Else, what else might you have done? I just looked at the entire world of uh, of things that one can do. Um, and listen, my dad says adversity is a terrible thing to waste. That's his big quote. Um, I've been very blessed. Even in the last year, I've been blessed. Um, but it was certainly a season of adversity. Going through a breakup is not easy. And so my dad's whole thing is when faced with adversity, you can't avoid it, but look at it as an opportunity. And so my opportunity was I'm 39 years old. I've had an unbelievable run. I now have an opportunity to define anew what my next chapter will be. And I thought about a ton of different stuff. And at the end of the day, it was very, very clear to me that there's nothing that makes me happier. After a lot of consideration, yeah, I'm going to do restaurants again. It, I think once you find your happy place, it, you got to lean into it. I was giving advice to someone the other day who, was, who had worked for me for a long time, and they, they were just feeling lost in their direction and what they wanted to do with their lives. And they're young enough where they still have an opportunity to figure out what it is that they want to do. And um, I told him to do the same thing that I did over the last year. I said, listen, I want you to write down a list of two things, a list of the things that bring you joy and a list of your superpowers. And then create a Venn diagram. And where those two things intersect, that's what you should do. Um, because listen, one without the other doesn't work. You can be really good at something, but if it doesn't make you happy, you shouldn't do it. And if something makes you really happy, but you suck at it, you probably shouldn't do that either. Can you just explain to people, because this is sort of your vernacular at this point, right? For people who haven't heard you say this, can you explain what you mean by the superhero comment? It kind of goes back to what I was saying about um, when I checked into the hotel and how you can be excited about some ego and humility and, and that whole thing. I think if you don't have the capacity to name your own superpowers, too many people feel like that makes you egotistical to say out loud the things you're good at. But if you don't take the time to identify the things that you are better at than anyone else, then you won't be able to figure out those, those things that you should be leaning into. We all have superpowers, the things that make us great. And naming those things, that it's, it's so essential because A, it brings you confidence. You know the role that you should be playing on a team. You have the ability to lean into those things. And, and so that's what I mean when I say superpowers. But what I'm talking about with planning your future is if you can figure out what makes you happy and what your superpowers are, and you can lean into the things that kind of overlap between those two, um, I think that's the best way to plan your future. And for me, yeah, that's restaurants. Um, can we, can I just, first of all, there's a, I think there's a pre-shift in the notion of we have two mics for the three of us, and it really forces everyone to wait till the other person's done Talking. talking before it they really can does. jump in. It really does. What I was going to say, though, you said something like to, you know, would you take it down to zero again? Like when you were, you know, I always wonder for all the, you guys are really good at what you do, right? I always, you know, there's all these great stories out there like, you know, the actor who was told, you have no talent, you'll never make it, you know, and then they, that turns out to be a superstar, right? But there's also, like, I've always wondered, you know, are there people out there who get this kind of advice, who hear this kind of inspiration, but, you know, as you said a second ago, like, maybe you also have to be good at it, you know? And I'm always worried, you know, is there, like, are there these untold, you know, dark side of motivational talks out there? You know, people who developed a false confidence from hearing, you know, 
from well, hearing success stories because you know it, there's a there's a very thin line between brave and and self destructive. Well, in our business, there's still a ninety percent failure rate. I don't even like talking about this because there's so much gloom and doom and bad stuff about restaurants all the time. But what I always say to people is, I was like, the ten percent that succeed though control the market, and if you look at the who those ten percent of people are. They're the people who who approach it with passion and intention, and it's got some financial responsibility behind it, and they're they're good at, at bringing talent to the table. You just have to do all those things. It's not even about one person specifically being talented. They just have to approach it in the right way. So yeah, I, there are people that go to these things and get false confidence, but as long as you're deliberate about the process and you really look at it, you're not recreating the wheel with success is what I always say with people. I'm like, hey, there's a whole bunch of case studies that you can go look at where you can create something that's successful. I believe it of you. If you're, if you're smart and you're a good person and you're a hard worker, you can succeed at the restaurant business. I, be, I believe that I agree. I agree with that. I also think that there's so many people that have succeeded in our business who are so different from one another and whose talents vary so dramatically. Kevin and I are, are, are similar in a lot of ways, but he is much better than I am at a bunch of stuff. Um, and well, likewise. And like you look at, I mean, you can look at all the great chefs or restaurateurs in the country and the skill sets vary dramatically. I also think that um, maybe people aren't good. Maybe a chef isn't a great chef in the conventional sense of the word, but they're really, really good at this other thing. And honestly, it's a lot of those people that have actually moved the conversation forward. You look at, you know, what Chang built at Momofuku. It's so different from what was, uh, you know, conventionally considered to be uh, haute cuisine, right? And, yep. And I think it's the, it's the case with, with restaurants. I don't, maybe superpowers is not the right way to put it because um, most superheroes, they just received their superpowers through this moment or they were born with them. I think in the restaurant business, more often than not, you work really hard to gain your superpower. I've been working in restaurants since I was 14 years old. It's not like I just got good at it overnight. You earned your wings. Yeah, you earned your wings. <laughs> I like that. I like that a lot. And so, yeah, sometimes people come to me and they're in their late 30s and they want to be a restaurant owner. And I don't think it's ever too late for something. But yeah, it's going to be much harder at that stage in your life to become a great restaurateur because you don't have the benefit of 20 years to start as a dishwasher and then become a busboy and then become an assistant, uh, a server and then a manager and then a host and work as a bartender and then a sommelier. And then, um, but I think to Kevin's point, if you have a good head in your shoulders, if you live with integrity, and if you're willing to work really, really hard, or to our last point, to do whatever it takes. I think you can make it. There needs to be an ambition. There needs to be a fearlessness. And you need to believe in yourself. But those things combined, it, it, it's nothing short of extraordinary what people can achieve. And I think oftentimes people don't even fully understand their own capacity. We've both had the great pleasure of watching people that worked with our companies go on and be great successes. 
after working with us, which is really amazing to see. And Will, you just got to watch James Kent, who was with you for years, open up Crown Shy, which has been a huge success. And um, these were people that went out, had great talent, were deliberate about it, were probably thinking about what their restaurants were going to be like the whole time that we worked with our company, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, and that's so smart. If you can work for somebody and that whole time you're with them, approach it from a standpoint of I'm going to build my playbook while I'm operating, while I'm working through their playbook. Right. Yeah, for sure. And so, yeah, I, I do think, yeah, the negative ramifications of motivation being what they are. I just, I mean, it comes down to grit. Well, there's more than one way to make it happen, right? It sounds like yeah. that's what you're saying. Is there anything that's been on your mind industry-wise, either or both of you, that you haven't, that you wish someone had asked you recently that's just, you want to put out there? Good or bad? Just we were question. actually talking at lunch today. We were like, are, are we living in the golden age of restaurants? And I, I do think that the golden age of restaurants has been the last, has been in the last 15 years. What we've seen, what, whatever grew out of that financial crisis, um, where great chefs were opening up more casual restaurants, and then that led to great chefs moving to more secondary cities has raised the bar in the US for food everywhere. That's an absolute fact. So I think you can look at that and say, food has gotten better everywhere in the last 10 to 15 years. I think that's really important. Um, and so I think that's a really good discussion piece right now of where it's going next. Because they keep making it more difficult for people to make money in the restaurant business. Um, there's a lot of government intervention that happens a lot of times without context, um, which upsets me. And, you know, the general public doesn't always understand that. If you keep getting rid of tip credit, um, you know, restaurants at some point, uh, you know, you, you can only raise prices so much. And so, you know, great neighborhoods and great cities were built on the backs of great restaurants. Um, neighborhoods all over the country were defined by great restaurants. And when Union Square Cafe can't renew their lease because they can't afford to be in that same neighborhood, there's a problem, man. And you know, you look at San Francisco and all of that, it's, it, it, something's got to give at some point. So I just hope that we can come up with a good economic structure for restaurants where everybody can succeed. What I was thinking about when you say golden age of restaurants and reflecting on my last year, um, I don't know how you really define that because I think things are just going to change and maybe some would look at the past with rose-colored glasses and say the golden age is behind us. Others might look into the future and say we've not come anywhere close to reaching our full potential. Um, I think one of the many, many reasons I consider myself blessed to be working in restaurants now, just the fact that we're having conversations like this. The fact that there's now an environment where you have a podcast that people listen to and they get excited about listening to it and that we sit together and there's this community. Some of my closest friends are restaurateurs. Um, and that community, 
the opportunity to share ideas, inspire one another, share stories, meals, drinks, dream together, plan together. I think that that sense of community and kinship within a field that has so often been uh, focused more on competition, uh, more focused on rivalry than revelry, um, I think it just makes this whole thing so much more fun. And if this isn't the golden age, well, that community is at least putting us on the path towards getting there. But the support I feel from so many people who do what we do or the love I feel from or for that same group of people, it just makes me feel really lucky that that this is what I chose to do with my life. Very well said. I still feel very romantically about the restaurant business. Everything that I have in my life, um, almost all of it, I can um, give the restaurant business credit for. Um, it's how I how I'm how I met how I met my wife. I have my kids, and most of my my close friends are from this business. Um, yeah, I, I, I still, I still love it. I still have a deep love and passion for it. And you're right. I, and I think the most generous people in the world are, are in this business. Um, so I just want it to be better all the time. So glad there's a lot of people that are constantly thinking about how to make it better. Thanks for having us on your show. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks guys. This was great. Really we're, appreciate it. We're, we're big fans. <laughs> <laughs> Can you just sign, uh, just sign right here. Sign, can you just, sign my box set before just we to, go? <laughs> just, to, just to let you guys know, Andrew's signing Will's chest right now. <laughs> All right. This was great. Thank you. And that's our show for this week. I did, for the record, try to find Kevin's Indigo radio ad. But no such luck. I think it's been disappeared from the public record, probably because it was made before the internet was as prevalent as it is now. I am, however, sharing the link to the welcome conference speech we'd referred to in the conversation. We colloquially referred to it, I think, as the Wendy speech. You can find a link to that on the episode page for this show on andrewtalkstochefs.com. Again, my huge thanks to Kevin Baim and Will Gadara for joining me while in Philadelphia to Mike Trout and the team at the Philly Chef Conference for hosting us all in such style, to our engineer David Tatashore for splicing these things together every week, and thanks to all of you out there in podcast land for listening. See you back here soon on another episode of Andrew Talks to Chefs. <laughs>